This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, December 29th. I'm Virginia Allen. Welcome to the final edition of the Daily Signal's Best of 2023 podcast interview series. This week, we brought you the best of the Daily Signal podcast from the year. And today, we are ending with one of my personal favorite shows from the year. In November, I had the opportunity to sit down with Baroness Caroline Cox. She has a long history of service in public office, including in Great Britain's House of Lords. But her greatest passion is serving war-torn and poverty-stricken nations all around the world. Baroness Cox joins us to share about her work with the Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust and why she's so passionate about going to the hardest and darkest places where often the government can't go. Stay tuned for our conversation. But before we get to that, I do want to take a minute as we near the end of the year to explain how you can be even more so a part of our Daily Signal family and a part of our Heritage Foundation family. As many of you are aware of, the Daily Signal is the news outlet of the Heritage Foundation. And the Daily Signal podcast is a product of the Heritage Foundation, which is one of the world's most influential and trusted think tanks. We've been operating since 1973. Heritage works in Washington, D.C. and across the country to develop conservative policy solutions to the most critical issues facing America today. And those are issues that we then often talk about right here on the Daily Signal podcast, sometimes with Heritage Foundation experts. And Heritage is fighting every day in a war against failed leftist policies that threaten to destroy our country. And we need your help to keep on doing just that. So please consider making a tax-deductible gift in support of the Heritage Foundation and the Daily Signal before December 31st. If you want to give, just go to heritage.org. Again, that's heritage.org. Together, we can take back America. It is my distinct privilege and honor today to be joined by the Honorable Baroness Cox of Queensbury. Baroness Cox, thank you so much for being here today. It's a great privilege. Thank you for inviting me. And it's a great opportunity. Uh, we do a lot of humanitarian work, mm. and I always appreciate the opportunity to share the pain and the passion of what we do. Yes, and that comes through so clearly in your work, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to discussing that with you today. You have an impressive resume and an impressive career. You served as Deputy Speaker of the House of Lords from 1985 to 2005. You currently serve as an independent member of the House of Lords. You also currently serve as a Vice President of the Royal College of Nursing. Uh, you have done extensive humanitarian work, which we're, we're going to talk about here in a moment. What brings you to Washington, D.C. this week? I think to share some of the pain and the passion of what we do with our humanitarian aid work with people who are suffering on their front lines of faith and freedom and to share that and hopefully to generate some interest and some engagement in the concerns of which we are involved. Mm, faith and freedom so closely aligned. Two subjects are very, very closely aligned. Uh, as as we dive in and as we talk today, I, I do want to begin by asking you just a little bit of news related to current events here in America following Hamas's attack on Israel. There's just been so many conversations around support for Israel and Palestine and I think many Americans have been very surprised to see a lot of uh, pro-Palestine support and demonstrations and protests. What's the atmosphere? What's the situation like in the UK right now? 
Well, I think probably very similar to what you describe here in the United States. Um, our official policy is generally uh, supporting Israel because Israel did suffer the first major onslaught in the Arab bombardment yeah. uh, way back at the beginning, which triggered the whole tragedy and the current conflict. And so there is obviously a lot of concern for Israel. But then one has to be concerned for people who are suffering in any conflict situation. Mm -hmm. And so there'd be a humanitarian concern for what's happening uh, on both sides. Certainly. And that passion, that heart of yours, that concern for the suffering, that is something that compelled you um, to, to, in the past, to, to introduce uh, a law um, in the UK, to introduce a bill, rather, uh, that would outlaw Sharia law and Sharia courts in the UK. Speak a little bit to that and why that was something that you felt was so important to do. Well, when I was appointed to the House of Lords, I wasn't into politics. I was the first baroness I'd ever met. So it was quite <laughs> a shock. How do I use the privilege of being able to speak in the mm -hmm. British Parliament, in the House of Lords? And it occurred to me it's a wonderful place to be a voice for people whose voices are not heard. So a lot of our humanitarian work, I set up my own small not-for-profit humanitarian aid relief trust working for people suffering oppression and persecution who are largely unreached by the major aid organizations for political reasons or security reasons. Um, but there's another side to that of trying to be a voice for people whose voices are not heard. And one of my concerns has been the plight of many Muslim women in the United Kingdom who have marriages which are not legally registered. Mm. Now, I didn't say we can do away with Sharia completely. What I am concerned is where women have Sharia marriages which are not legally registered, and then they're vulnerable to all the kind of um, Muslim traditions. If you have a Sharia marriage, you can be divorced. The husband just said, I divorced you three times, and you are divorced mm. in the religious context there. And so I I'm, I'm suffered uh, alongside, or I worked with Muslim women who are suffering uh, in these situations. And it occurred to me, we need to do something about that. And so I've introduced a private member's bill, which is trying to make sure that all religious marriages are legally registered. And then the Muslim women have the protections of a legally registered marriage, and not just the lack of protection uh, in purely a Sharia marriage. Mm. And so I've got a private member's bill, which is trying to make sure that Sharia marriages are legally registered. I may say I've been fighting this one for quite a long time mm. and sadly have not made much progress. But at least it raises the issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that many Muslim women are very grateful for this initiative. Mm -hmm. I just wish we could turn it into law. Yeah. Mm. When you speak to those Muslim women about this issue, what do they say to you? Well, they're often desperate yeah. because... If you don't have a legally registered marriage, then, as I say, the husband can just divorce you by saying, I divorce you three times, and they are left divorced with no rights. And very often, then they lose um, all the rights which normally go with the marriage, uh, financial rights and other uh, rights which you would have. And so they're left totally vulnerable. Um, and it is a situation which really we should not allow in a country like the United Kingdom. Mm. So that's why we're really trying very hard to protect those Muslim women from having a marriage which is not legally registered. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that it's been a long fight. <laughs> yes. Where where does the bill stand right now? It's just there. It's on the statute book. But sadly, we it's been for quite a few years. Yeah. We have got a bit further than that. We've had what's called a second reading. Once it did get through on the House of Lords and to get through the House of Commons, but there, again, the, the parliamentary program was so tight 
that it didn't get through to serious consideration and becoming voted on and becoming potentially law. Mm. So there is a long way to go. And in the meantime, the Muslim women are left very vulnerable. Mm. Well, as as we were just talking about before we, we hit record, you were saying that you have a real passion for the people that maybe are not getting attention in, in the news and that aren't at, on the front of every newspaper that maybe we're not hearing too much about. And that passion for people, specifically underserved communities, has led you into humanitarian work. You are involved in humanitarian aid around the world. You are the chief executive of HART, which stands for Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust. What is your mission? The mission is to work for people who are suffering oppression and persecution in areas which are largely unreached by the major aid organizations like the UN because they can only go places with permission of a sovereign government. Mm. If a sovereign government doesn't give them permission, then they can't go. And so the people are left so vulnerable. Well, there may be another reason why they could be left vulnerable, and that is for security reasons, because very often they're in war zones or conflict zones. And so aid organizations may not be able to reach them for conflict security reasons. So our little organization, which I identified, HEART, Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust, we are really committed to reaching people suffering oppression and persecution in those sort of areas to provide aid and advocacy we work with local partners, and they are the real heroes and heroines mm. on the front lines of faith and freedom. It may be risky visiting them, but it's a privilege to be alongside them. And we will work with people, whatever their faith tradition. Mm. Uh, the majority of people we work with happen to be Christians because Christians are suffering a lot of persecution mm. around the world today. But we do work with Muslims who are suffering in Blue Nile State in Sudan, and they're suffering uh, quite a lot from the pretty aggressive policies of the cartoon policy in Sudan. Yeah. We work with Buddhists who are suffering in, we call it Burma, not Myanmar, because the local people prefer that, but Myanmar. And they're up in the middle belt areas. And the aid organizations that go through the capital don't really reach them and may well get taken off and abused by other people. So we work with local partners, and they're the real heroes and heroines on the front lines of freedom. These are hard areas that you all are going into and often dangerous. What what are kind of those those practical needs that you all are bringing and that you're trying to meet? And then also, are there spiritual needs you're trying to meet, uh, you know, support for trauma these folks have, have maybe endured? What are, what are the resources that, that you're hoping to bring? Well, we always ask our local partners what their priority is. We don't tell them. Mm-hmm. We ask them. And so they identify their priorities. We're not a huge organization. And so they will, if you like, sort of shape their priorities, the kind of resources we can offer. But just two examples, when we work with our friends, the Buddhist friends in Shan State in Sudan, um, their priorities for maternal and child health care, because they have a lot of people living in remote areas, they don't have adequate maternal and child health. And so we have a very, very effective training program for local people in maternal and child health. Mm. Or going to Nigeria, we work in Middle Belt in Nigeria, where there are a lot of attacks going on. They don't hit the headlines. But the Islamist Fulani, who are attacking the Christians, predominantly Christian villages and communities, I must say, I would make a distinction between Islam and Islamism. Islam are are Muslim friends. Islamism is a kind of ideology behind ISIS and Al-Qaeda, which is brutal and vicious. And it's that Mm. which is behind the Islamist Fulani in Nigeria, and they are attacking and destroying 
villages, and one and a half million people have had to flee for their lives mm. and are living in as displaced people in dire conditions. And we always ask people, what's your priority? And they say, please, education for our children. They don't wow. have education. They never have a future. So we do provide education supplies for the displaced people in Middle Belt in Nigeria. And we've reached thousands of children. And I wish you could see the smiles on their faces when the education supplies come. And so it's very poignant to be just diversifying into healthcare provisions for those people who are displaced. So that's an example of how we listen to the local people and respond to their priorities. Mm-hmm. Are are those individuals, are they primarily living um, in refugee camps or where are these areas where they have settled that you all are, are coming in and trying mm-hmm. to bring that education? Some are in refugee camps. Um, some are just out, out in, in, in the, community. the phrase, the bush yeah. mm-hmm. and living in dire situations and they really are desperate people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't hit the headlines. It doesn't in the UK, yeah. don't know about the United States. But this suffering goes on. And as I say, we like to be there with aid and advocacy. That's the aid side. But also being a small humanitarian organization, we believe in being a voice for people whose voices are not heard Mm -hmm. and being their voice in trying to challenge authorities and governments uh, to support those who are suffering injustice. And so we will try to be their voice, whether it's in Nigeria or in Burma or Myanmar, trying to mobilize uh, official support for them. Mm-hmm. And that's quite a challenge, but you can't not do it. Who are the faces that you carry with you when you go on these trips and you, you talk to those who face persecution and the mothers and the fathers who are asking for education for their children? Are, are there certain people that you think about often that you've met on those trips? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, we are very small organizations. We, we do go in person. There's only five of us in heart itself. Um, but we will also take friends and colleagues who share the same passion. And yes, you just meet such dignity in the, in those areas. I'll just give one one example. And that is, I'm going back to the little Armenian land of Nagorno-Karabakh, which has been suffering at the hands of Azerbaijan with attempted ethnic cleansing. But I remember being there and I, t- I visited a village which had been attacked by the Islamist Azerbaijan forces and they destroyed everything and the homes were still burning and the bodies had been attacked and decapitated bodies were still mm. on the ground. It was just hell on earth. Mm. But I met a young mother who'd managed to escape and she survived. But I think something like 14 of her family had been killed oh. and she was just left absolutely destitute and desolate and desperate. But I just said, do you have a message to the world? Do you like to tell the world? And I'll never forget, she just said, I want to say thank you. Mm. I want to say thank you that you have come. You've been with us in these terrible times. You've had the courage to come. I want to say thank you. Well, I didn't think thank you the words that would come to my mind. Mm-hmm. I just lost so many of my family and seen the suffering all around me. That's the dignity mm. of the people. And I could give so many examples of dignity. Mm. Really powerful. It's very eye-opening mm. and humbling, mm. I very imagine. Very humbling, very humbling, very inspiring, yeah. but hugely humbling. Very humbling. Why do you think we don't see a little bit more attention on these issues in news or or discussed among political leaders? I think it goes back to that key word, interests. Mm. Um, Our governments have interests. And I'll just give one example. I've given a lot of this in, in, in Parliament itself, so it's not a secret. But it just summarizes the whole concept of interest. Because it was when I was in... Nagorno-Karabakh, 
when Azerbaijan was dropping cluster bombs on civilians, which is against international law. And I had photographs of children who were shredded by cluster bombs. And I took these photographs to a senior person in our foreign office. And I said, well, British government make representations, the government of Azerbaijan, to stop dropping cluster bombs on civilians. It's against international law. And the answer, no country has interest in other countries, only interests. We have oil interest in Azerbaijan. Good morning. Wow. And I think that summarizes really the essence of where the interests are mm, and where you can hopefully elicit some support, whether it's aid or advocacy, and where you're a really just crying into the, into the wilderness mm. because the people have interests. Mm, that is very telling, very telling indeed. Mm. What goes into preparing for one of these trips? I mean, when you're entering areas that are so dangerous, what are the factors that you're having to take into account and how do you go about planning a trip when you're going in sometimes to conflict areas? Well, we work with the local partners and they're the real heroes and heroines. So they organize the visits. Now, it doesn't do away with the danger, mm. but it does mean that there's as much preparation as possible that goes into the visit and as much, um, should I say, readiness to try to uh, respond if under attack. I remember going into Sudan some years back when the regime in Khartoum was attacking its own people in Blue Nile State. And they came with aerial bombardment. And we were going in an open-topped uh, sort of jeep. And uh, the people had warned us. And they said, you know, if you see an aircraft coming, just get out and run and hide. And um, so we, we wore sort of colors, khaki colors that would merge with the bush. We were hiding in the bush. And when a, a bomber came, we just ran and hid. And you could hear the plane circling over. But I lived to tell another day. That's unbelievable. <laughs> wow. It's a privilege. They're living it, it all the time. Yeah. We come and mm -hmm. go. Um, but they live it. It is their life. And it's so important to be alongside them. And to come back and be able to say, you know, I've been, I've seen, this is how it really is. Yeah. So we're not just reading a report. No, but we're telling it how it really is with the people. And we will say, what's your message? What you want us to say? And therefore, we're their voice. Mm. And what a privilege that is. That is a privilege. Mm. Of course, tragically, things are are uh, very tense right now in Sudan. There's been much mm. conflict over the past year there. Uh, what has your, your organizations, what has Heart's involvement been in Sudan over the past year? How are things on the ground right now? Well, we work both in, there are three areas. We yeah. work in Sudan and in South Sudan, where there are a lot of problems. And then there's a disputed territory between the two called Abyei doesn't on the, hit the headlines very much, but it is a disputed territory. And that's suffering too. And um, it's just, well, we're there. We try to provide the aid that they need. But also, I used to be there many times in the days when slavery was being mm. inflicted by the regime in Khartoum on the peoples of South Sudan. And I remember last time I was in Abyei, between the two Sudan and South Sudan, and um, it was heartbreaking. The first morning we were there, uh, the governor said, please come, there's been a massacre. Mm. And this is two or three years ago now because I haven't been able to go back during COVID. But uh, it was the aftermath of an massacre. Mm. And the homes were still burning, the bodies were still on the ground, and it was hell on earth. Mm. The next morning, slightly happier, uh, I was there, and um, I heard a voice saying, uh, uh, are you Lady Cox? And I said, well, I think so, yes. <laughs> and this lovely young guy said, I wanted to meet you all my life. Because you rescued mm. me from slavery. And wow. I always want to meet you to say thank you for rescuing me from 
slavery. And there are a lot of other young people around here who'd like to meet you to say thank you too. What a privilege. What a privilege. Yeah. Oh, you never forget that. No, you don't. But what a privilege just to be able to be part of that. How did you first get into doing aid work? I mean, th- this is just incredible and beautiful hearing these stories. How did you get to do this? Well, to cut a long story very short, I'm 86 years old, so it's a long story. It's <laughs> very short. But I always have a nurse and a social scientist by intention, and a baroness by astonishment. Mm. I was not into politics. I was appointed to politics uh, for long uh, battles I'd fought for academic freedom in another story another time, but I wrote mm. a book about it with two colleagues called The Rape of Reason, mm. and that hit the headlines. And uh, there's a very famous writer at that time who had op-ed articles in the Times newspaper, and uh, I was getting the kids ready for school the day the book was due to be published, and I was quite nervous going back to face the music. And my late husband called up and said, Bernard Levin is on the phone. So, yeah, well, he was. He said, I just read your book. I think it's the most important book for the future of democracy I've read for the last 10 years. Mm. I'm going to cover it in tomorrow's Times. Mm. So in the op-ed uh, page in the mm. Times newspaper, and in the title, In All Its Brutality, The Making of an Intellectual Concentration Camp. Mm. And at the end, he said, it's such an important book the future of democracy, I'm going to devote my remaining two articles this week to discussing it. Wow. Wow. So he gave us a trilogy, three articles. He'd only done before for Mozart and Solzhenitsyn's being good company. That got the boat name, got me known, which I think was pointed at the House of Lords directly. But being there, I thought, what a privilege to be here. And how do I use this privilege? Then the idea came, it's a wonderful place to be a voice for people whose voices are not heard. But in order to do that, I've got to go and hear the voices. Mm -hmm. I've got to be alongside them. And so heart our organization, Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust, was founded to work with people suffering oppression and persecution, largely unreached by the major aid organizations. And you go there, and they're usually in war zones and suffering conflict and persecution, so they need both aid and advocacy. Mm. So I set up HEART in order to fulfill that mission. You have done so many things in your life. What Uh, As we close here, I'd love to ask you what advice you would give to to young people like myself who are are young in our careers. We have a passion for truth. We have a passion for making an impact in this world. When you're asked for advice, what do you share with young people? Well, I think each person has their own individual life story, their own individual talents and gifts and things that they have to offer. And so I wouldn't dream to tell anyone what is right for them to do. I just say, there's a very important phrase, I think, that, well, I believe in God, but it doesn't need God. God doesn't want our ability, he wants our availability. Mm. And if we can be available and responsive to the needs that are going on around the world, then I think we'll see fairly quickly an area where we can actually be involved. And in heart, we try to combine both aid and advocacy, but both are needed. Some people may focus on aid. Some may focus on advocacy, hugely important. We happen to combine the two. But I think it's to be available mm. for people who are suffering and very often who are suffering in places not being reached by the international media, not being reached by international aid organizations, not very much, and just to be available mm. for them. It's very practical and beautiful. For those who would like to support the work that you're doing with Heart, how can they do that? Well, we'd love to hear from them. Uh, you can find it on the website. It's called Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust. And you'll find the website and the address there. We'd love to hear from them and just to share with them and answer any questions they might have. 
Excellent. Baroness Cox, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a joy. It's been a joy for me to share the pain and the passion. Mm. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to oh, do that. Awesome. Really appreciate it. Our privilege. Thank you. My privilege. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. We are going to leave it right there for today. Thank you so much for making the Daily Signal podcast a part of your Christmas holiday in between Christmas and New Year's here. Thank you for being a part of this series and for catching some of our favorite and your favorite interviews from the year. We do not have a podcast on Monday. There will not be a morning or evening show in honor of New Year's. We hope you all have a joy-filled New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Have a wonderful weekend. Stay safe out there. We will be back with our top news show next week starting on, um, well, actually, we don't know for sure when we're starting that. So we will be back with our top news show starting next week, and we will have a brand new interview edition for you out on Tuesday morning. In the meantime, it's not too late to give The Daily Signal a Christmas gift this year. Take a moment and leave us a five-star rating interview. Let us know what you think about the show. We would love to hear your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you like to listen. And don't forget to subscribe. Have a wonderful weekend. Again, we're off on Monday, but we will see you next year, meaning Tuesday, for a brand new edition to kick off 2024 with a bang. Happy New Year. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.